Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Let's have all the oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. It's episode 37 of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. I'm Ray Coob. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. And we have a guest in the studio tonight, Marcus. I am so excited. He and I have known each other a long time, back to the glory days of Rough House Records. He is the author of Rough House, From the Streets of Philly to the Top of the 90s Hip-Hop Culture, published by Diversion Books. My friend Chris Schwartz is here. How you doing, man? I'm doing well, Ray. Thanks for having me, Marcus. Thanks for having me up to your place. Have you ever been down to MMR Studios before with your long time in Philly? The old MMR Studios. Down at Rittenhouse? Down Rittenhouse, Rittenhouse yes. Square. Okay, so yes. you haven't been to the Bala one. No. As a matter of fact, it was a good thing I went online before I left my house because I was actually <laughs> headed down to Rittenhouse. <laughs> <laughs> I double check. But I, got, I guess the rents got a little pricey down there. Huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was yeah. all corporate moves and stuff. Nobody really wanted to ever move out of that place. It was perfect uh, right there in the neighborhood. It was nice. Uh, you know, I remember when I Q used to be at the, right, uh, the, yeah, the suburban, train suburban oh, yeah, yeah. train station and YSP and yeah I mean those were the three stations yeah you know and then you had WHAT and then you know later on obviously WDS and uh, then earlier 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 on for for me it was WFIL Oh, yeah. Dr. Don Rose. We talk about, we talk about, about Famous them. 56 regularly here on the podcast uh, because we're a little Philly-centric. Marcus grew up in Denver. You're a Philly guy. You grew yeah. up what, in the main line, right? I yeah. grew up in Devon, and it was you'd get up at you know 6 in the morning to get the bus to go to St. Monica's, and it would be Dr. Don Rose playing Sky Pilot and talking yeah. with the reverb and everything in yeah. the morning. Wow. You know? yeah. <laughs> and the school bus would play that on the way? No, 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 while waiting, you know, um, while you're getting okay. ready to go to school. I, I had a bunch radio, of older right? brothers and sisters, and they all were, you know. You wrote your book. It came out in June of 2019. How long did you plan to write the book? How long was that whole process of writing Rough House from the streets of Philly to the top of the 90s hip-hop charts? Let's see. I'll tell you the whole, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. So uh, there, was a, <laughs> there, was a, there was a woman who used to work for me, 
named Kay Vaughn, who was my controller for Rough Nation, which was the label after Rough House when I was going through Warner Brothers. Actually, Kay did work for Rough House too, but she was my head person who controlled all the money. So Kay had, is now works for different production companies and film production companies. And she said, you know, you should really write a book because it would do well and there's this resurgence happening for 90s hip hop and opportunities for documentaries and the like and all that stuff. And even then, I kind of felt like, you know, it just feels like everything, even though it happened a long time ago, it just felt like it happened yesterday. It felt too soon. And she would call me because she would fly back and forth from the East Coast to West Coast and she would call me from the airport. And it was like once a week I'd get these phone calls. And I finally said, you know what, let me look into doing this. So, you know, I've been an avid reader, a voracious reader all my life. But when it comes to writing a book, I didn't really know where to start. So I do what everybody else says. You go on the Internet and look it up. And it's like, okay, you need to find an agent. Do a query letter. So I sent out query letters, right? I thought they looked really great. I sent them out to like probably 50 agents over a course of a couple of weeks and I was getting shot down left and right. And what happened was I started sending them over to Britain because I figured, you know, they're in the rough house over there and maybe I'll get somebody, you know, and I had sent a couple to Scotland because I was trying to find the agency that represented the train spotting book, you know? So I get an email one afternoon and it's this guy and he introduces himself. He's an agent in Scotland and he had just gotten my query letter. It just come in and he was on his way out the door to go see Nas and Miss oh. Lauren Hill doing a show. Wow. The story of how you get around to doing the book sounds like other things in the book, the way things happen in your life. People telling you, nah, nah, and not seeing what you saw. Nas calls you a visionary right there on the cover yeah. of the book. But I noticed that it's a recurring theme throughout the book. Things people tell people, people, yeah, uh, that too. But also people telling you, what the fuck are you doing here? Mm. And then the next thing you know, mm. it all comes into focus. The right things happen, a little serendipity, and then yeah. and you're on to the next level. Like when you move from working for the label in Philly and and moving on to the next thing that led to the yeah. next thing that led, but Get back to you about your uh, yeah. the hookup on no, the book. No, I get you say no. It's it's definitely starting to be. I always say be most expecting when you're least expecting. So yeah, so he emails me and he's telling me this whole thing. He goes, look, he goes, I can't represent you, but I'll tell you what you need to do. He goes, you need to do a nonfiction proposal, and I'm like, well, what's that? He goes, it's like a book report. And he oh, actually, Christ, we did those in Catholic yeah, school. It's been 50 yeah. years, so dude. He actually sends me, his agency represented this guy who wrote a book about Elton John's pandemonium years out in L.A. So he sent me that template of like how it's supposed to be set up. You know, your overview, your author bio, then your chapter breakdown, like all that. So I put that together in like a day. I sent it out to 15 agencies and the day after the next i'm suddenly gotten all these emails and oh, like wow. top like trimark or uh, trident group mm -hmm. they're like the biggest agency in the country and two of their top agents wanted to represent me right holy cow but and i i don't want to disparage them or anything like that but the very first agent that got me on the phone was a woman who was with a big agency in New York and she lives in uh, New Orleans and she was more versed on Rough House than I, and she knew everything. She knew the artists and all that and she had not been an agent for long but she had been in rights management for like 14 years. So I said, this is my person. You knew by talking to her and the fact that she knew and respected your label and your work that she yeah. was the person to work with. Yeah, and then she got me a, a book deal in like a week and a half. And then how long did it take you to write the book from there? It took me 
I want to say about maybe four months or so. I will say this. Four months to get the manuscript done and sent in. But what really, when you're when you're in the editing phase, you just cannot wait for it to be over. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, oh my God. And you suddenly realize, but then you think about these like real writers that write these books and it's like, yeah, that's why those guys have like Stephen King money. No, no, but but also, <laughs> but they they all have been to like they've been schooled in this, you know, oh, right, and they've been right, English right, majors right. and everything like that, and it all comes so easy to them. But when you're a schlub off the streets like me, it's you know, it's you're not a schlub off the streets, I know, but, but you a know great what I mean. Yiddish I, word. I've by got the way. a ninth grade education, and you know, I think I, if I need to, I can talk eloquently enough, and I can write eloquently enough. But it right. it it doesn't come as as easily to me as I think it does to other people. One of the first things I learned from reading your book, I didn't know you were a Navy guy, so thank you for your service. You're welcome. You had a different kind of Navy experience yeah, than no you kidding. set out for. and uh... Yeah, yeah, it was... <laughs> Yeah, that was, uh, you're talking about the choice of duty station? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah, I know. You, well, know, you, Christian you Swain, thought it was one Christian thing? Christian Swain, no, he knows that whole area. He knows it. He oh, was the like, rock and roll archaeologist? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, what happened was when I went to my, after boot camp, they sent me to school in Memphis. And in my school in Memphis is where I learned about aviation, you know, electronics and, you know, computers and uh, guidance systems for bombs, the rockets, The stuff that you missiles. can take out of, you, out of the Navy mm -hmm. with you, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, well, maybe they, not the they, these, these planes have these big Gatling guns on them and, and like, mm -hmm. everything about heat seeking missiles, TV guided bombs, all that stuff. Right. And that's what I, I went to school for in Memphis. And in my school, I was number three in the class when we graduated. One of the guys in front of me got busted for weed. So now I was number two. And then the guy who was number one, he just wanted to go to San Diego. That was it. That's where he wanted to go. So now I had my wow, choice. free reign, right. Yeah, I had my choice. All these exotic <laughs> duty states. I yeah. could have gone to Guantanamo Bay if I wanted to. I could have gone to Hawaii, all these places. But I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be a musician. And I wanted to be in L.A. So mm. I took the closest place to L.A. Right. And it was exactly one halfway point between L.A. and San Francisco. And, I'm looking, and didn't you have a couple of your siblings that moved out there by yeah, then? Yeah. My brother, Bob, who I love, and my sister, Meg, and my sister, Anne, all moved out there. So <laughs> there was this pamphlet. They had these brochures for these duty stations. So we're all looking at these brochures and deciding, you know. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at the front of this brochure, and it, it has this, like, very idyllic scene, like waterfalls and canoeing and the, the sequoias. <laughs> yes. Very like a Shangri-La, right? Yeah, and I'm right. like, wow, this place looks beautiful. I can't wait. So cut to my sister and my brother-in-law are driving me up. We're driving up I-5 from L.A. We get to the Fresno exit, make a right, and we're driving down this road for like 40 miles. And all I'm seeing is dirt for like uh, ever, like desert. Oh, my. And, and what was like really bad was like the, the little oil things look like hobby horses, yeah. you know, that go up and down. They paint them to look like horses. They put these big eyes and yeah. mouse on them. Oh, yeah, and they're I'm, all over. So yeah, in North Dakota, looking, they have them, too. And I'm looking at these things, like sitting in the backseat of the car, looking out the window, and I'm thinking, what did I do? And then <laughs> by the time, by when I started to see Navy housing, when they dropped me off, I checked into the base, went to the barracks, and I dumped my sea bag in my room. I went out and walked around, and the air was insecticide, like thick. Like a uh, like, and I'd never uh, smelled this before. I didn't know what this was. I'm like, what uh, is that smell? And finally, I said, "What is that?" And he goes, "Oh yeah, it's, it's, we're, it was all industrial farming, and that insecticide so, was like 
sprayed heavy everywhere yeah. back before they knew any better. So before you got to California, you were in Nashville, Memphis, correct? Yeah. Or Memphis, Memphis, Memphis I'm sorry, yeah. Memphis with Beale Street, Stax Records, Sun Records. Oh, yeah. And you were listening to the black music stations. I'm a little too young to have experienced that. What were those music stations like? Because I've heard great stuff about the music that was well, coming out of the uh, black stations I, I in the 60s this. and 70s. There is a famous, famous, famous station in Memphis, and I'm sure it's still there, but it was... See, the, here's the thing about Memphis that was this really cool about it. Memphis is primarily a blues place. Yeah. Right? Right. But it's real integrated. You know what I mean? And you have a lot of really like cool white artists and cool African American artists all doing the same thing. Right. Which to me was really interesting. And the other thing about Memphis too, and I talk about in the book, I remember I was walking, I wanted to go down to the rail yards, right? Because I wanted to look at trains because I used to I spent my childhood walking up and down railroad tracks. And I wanted to go see, because I heard they had a lot of really cool trains, some older trains, like, you know, from back in the day. So I went down there, and it was like, when I was walking there, I went through a bunch of predominantly black neighborhoods. And, like, I could hear gospel choirs on every street corner. Wow. On a Sunday morning. Whoa. And it was like... Oh, come yeah. music coming out of the churches yeah. and into the it street. It was crazy, man. Wow. And you know what the thing is? I was a little bit of a wimp. I wanted to go up in some of these churches and hang out, you know? Like, yeah. You know, I, but I didn't know... You, know, you I, didn't know I, anybody. I'm 17 years old, you know? Yeah. And I'm like, uh, you know... it's like a, An gonna, awkward teenager. Yeah, yeah. awkward teenager. I'm going to suddenly show up in somebody's congregation. But it was really, really cool. And, you know, I got involved with, you know, Frank Virtue later on when I got out of the service. And he recorded a lot of gospel stuff and I helped them with it and it really gave me I think a foundational appreciation for real singing but you learned a lot you mentioned Frank you learned a lot working with him for him around that time you it gave you room to think outside the box for yourself as yeah. far as things in publishing was one of the things you were looking at and all the different things that you could get into what kind of formed up the idea that what ended up happening with Rough House what kind of formed that up in your head what's stage did you really get the idea that you might have like what it takes to create that oh well i didn't really have that type of confidence when i was doing it i may have come off like i did but quite honestly i didn't because i learned i was learning as i went along yeah. i got a tie i made some you know i mean i say in the book i made a lot of mistakes you made some big mistakes yeah, and like, they were right. ballsy mistakes though. well I, I gotta tell you this i'm gonna give you an example you remember executive slacks right sure yeah all right i was managing them and schoolie at the same time and i did a record on them we did a remake they did a they did a cover of gary glitter's rock and roll on the yeah. fire and ice Rock. so we did this really banging remix of it man it was awesome 12 inch so i had this 12 inch record so they were signed to this label called fundamental records a little independent label and they were licensed typically to a company over in amsterdam called play it against sam so play it against sam wants the 12 inch and i said okay well i'm getting ready to master it and uh you know i'll send it over they said you know what you know we'll do that for you just send it to us and we'll send you the stamper so you can manufacture over there you don't have to spend the money i'm like wow you guys are really cool right so now i'm at the time this company's like a two-man operation over there played against sam I met one of the guys I talked to years later. It was funny. And they spoke very good English, and it was in Belgium. And <laughs> I'm waiting for the stampers calling. Suddenly, nobody speaks English, right? And then when I finally do get somebody, oh, there was a strike at the metal plant, and this and that, right? By the time I got that package 
that was sent like 10th class, you know what I mean, oh. by steamship, right? <laughs> and the stampers are in it. So now what do I do? I got the stampers. I go and I get 2,000 records pressed up, right? Okay. Now I'm getting ready to go to the distributors. Uh, we already got it. We already bought it. We already got it. They already they already flooded our they already shipped it over here and everything oh. then. So that I, but I that was you, you are, that's the kind of stuff that you were you yeah. were saying as examples. There were other yeah. things too along the way, but somehow you always manage to turn it around. You yeah. know what I mean? Or or find your way past this obstacle yeah. to get around it. And then I mean along the way you start out as a musician, you know, playing yeah. around you were talking EDM. about hanging around MMR in the old days at in Rittenhouse Square, I haven't been there. Right. That was the, the days of when when all the clubs all the way out to the river on South Street, oh, the yeah. hot club and everything was I going on. I used to play, I played in a band when I got out of the Navy. First I started, I played with my best friend growing up, Jeff. We, we did electronic Jeff music. Jeff Coulter. Yeah, all electronic music. And we were into it. We were, head, we were big Kraftwerk fans. But then we, as that band, because um, WXPN had Star's End and Dias Part, and they played our stuff all the time, and we yep. did live broadcasts yep. from, from WXPN. They, they sponsored shows for us. We were part of this electronic music scene. It was awesome. I couldn't it believe really it. I couldn't believe it. I was That's just crazy. like, and, they, and people they book, we go do a show at St. Mary's, and people are showing, or, or the Painted Bride, and people are showing up, and they're paying like $9 to see us. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is 70s. All right, now this is, this is where I'm going to blow Marcus's mind here on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. You and I have that in common. I was playing music with my wife at the time. We got to know John. We ended up playing late night, just like you guys were describing, bringing your stuff up and playing at the right. XPN studio on 39th and Walnut, right? Right. Whoa. So I, I know we weren't there at the same time, right. but we were, we were doing the same thing on a different night a yeah. couple different times. So this was going on and it created this whole scene and these guys were in the middle of it because, well, my ex could play. I was more of a plunker, you know. But, yeah, well, but you guys got really into it and didn't, you had a, a rolling drum machine that yeah. ended up being a centerpiece as we, part of the, the we, future. Yeah, Jeff was a drummer. So we're listening to these records by these German artists, Klaus Schultz, a Tangerine Dream. Mm -hmm. you know, oh, I remember work. Tangerine right. Dream. Sure. And so, so Kraftwerk's Autobahn is a legendary record. We, we performed that entire album version at the East Side Club. Jeff and I right. performed it there. And here's the amazing thing. Audubon, right, the three longest playing songs in the history of AM Pop Radio are uh, Audubon, Inagata De Vida, right. and Tubular Bells, right? Right. Audubon, WFIL used to play a 21-minute version of Audubon. Really? And see, people talk about AM radio, but people don't know AM radio. You're AM right. radio was actually dope in its day. Yeah, Absolutely. They played everything, they, You're right. Man. They played the full versions. They, they didn't did do radio cool singles. because it was you're AM right. radio. Well, there were <sighs> stations. Not This isn't a across-the-board statement about it, because some people did play the edited singles. And the other thing that they did was they would, uh, they you know, they would record them on carts. Like yeah. we, we would play in radio, like, yeah. you know, we used to play the commercials on them. But they would play the songs off them and they would speed the fucking carts up oh, so yeah. they could get more songs into yeah. the hour. But I digress, which we often do here, by the well, way, on the Well, we were, were talking about, we were talking about the drum for the Rolling TRA. So up until then, right, the only real drum machines on the market were either ones that were built into your worlds or organs that you had in your living room, oh, right? right? Yeah. Well, you know, the salsa, Iron, yeah. the, mom, the samba, <laughs> yeah. right? So, so Rolling 
Allen Corporation had a machine called the CompuRhythm. And the CompuRhythm was like this box. And who used CompuRhythms? Well, when you go to the bar and the guy's playing the acoustic guitar, he's got the CompuRhythm. Yeah. It had like eight beats on it, right? Okay, yeah, the right. one man, the one man eight yeah. piece band. But that's all it did, right? <laughs> right. So we're listening to groups like Clown Schultz, uh, T Dream, and, and Kraftwerk. And we're like, how are they doing this? How are they having these drums along with this, like, working and everything? And Jeff figured it out that they were using these clock-generated sequences, and they were synthesizing actual drum sounds. Like, you know, right. that's all. I got to tell you something. When you look at the body of Kraftwerk's work, right, in that day and age, and you look at what went into making those records. What they had to now, do. People what like they Daft, had to do. Daft Punk and everything, they all, everybody has Pro Tools and editing yeah. and all that stuff. They and, couldn't right. do this. They, right. Well, I, you're pretty talented guys. I love no, Daft Punk. No, a lot of the yeah, today people too. couldn't but, do it, but I'm saying. But the thing is, that's the thing. When you listen to Kraftwerk, the purity of it, like yeah. the analog the thing. Makes it so, more amazing. So we're reading this. Jeff found an article in some magazine talked about where the Roland Corporation was coming out with a programmable drum machine. It was like, ah! Well, it's like, we had to have this. And the great thing about it was that, you know, you have all your sounds that are so iconic, especially in the world of hip-hop, you know, hand claps, cowbell, kick drum, snare, woodblock, right? Each instrument has its own output. So you can now, not only can you program the program it, you can actually run that output through its own channel in the board. You can mix it, and then when you're playing live, it's like, you know, when you mic a drum, that's one thing. Yeah. But when you have an output coming out of a drum machine, yeah. that's like pure big. Yeah, it's it a is. metaphysical experience, Whoa. right? So what happened was we were the first people to have this, but we weren't thinking about hip hop at the time. No. Hip hop, hip hop, really it existed, but what really existed was electro funk and break dancing. Uh, hip hop, rap, which is a thing that you do. It's not a term of for something. Where did right. the Sugar Hill Gang come into this? They, okay, I'll, I'll, that's what I was going to get to. That so that was like there was two things, right? You had groups like Curtis Blow, the Sugar Hill Gang, Grandmaster Flash, and everything. But what was really driving radio? was the electro-funk stuff, Nucleus, right. right? But the two records that really kind of, like, gave birth to, like, the breakdance nation was Space is the Place by Africa Bimbada and Soul Sonic Force, oh, yeah. right? Produced that. by Arthur Baker, right? What they did was they took Kraftwerk's Trans Europe Express and they put a whole separate, like, breakbeat under it, right? Okay. And then they did their ad-lib rap parts over it. That song was like the bridge between the Germanic electronic music and the American breakdance music. Whoa. The breakdance movement. This is important. This is that an is. important... You're learning on the imbalance history of rock. This is an important event yes. in the history of hip-hop because if it had not happened... I personally don't know if hip-hop would have cross-pollinated and become this thing. And then what came after that? Kraftwerk numbers, right? Numbers, basically, now you could not not break dance with a track like number, you know? Right. So that was it. And that's what really, to me, was the initial fire that, that drove radio. Because anytime you had anything with just rapping, okay, I could not help but constantly notice how the R&B A&R would try and glom onto it and make it into an R&B thing, thing. you yeah. know? And right. Like what they did with the mm -hmm. Billboard when they, had the, when they established uh, the Hot Rap 
25 singles chart for the first two weeks. It was all rap records, right? And then the third week, you're starting to see these R&B records slip in there mm. because there's like, you know, half of half a bar of rap in it. You know what I mean? Mm. And it became like a mark. Oh, well, we'll put a rap on it. That way you can get on another chart, you know? Interesting about Africa Bombata because I know him from his work with Johnny Rotten in the 80s, World Destruction, oh, yeah. which was a big yeah. Yeah. cheesy suburban white kids dancing at oh, alternative God. I was, clubs I was a massive track. pill fan. Oh, God. And pill Riding great. Riding through the forest in a Japanese oh, yeah. car. And I'll Seattle. never forget the, oh, <laughs> the impression yes. you made. Left the hole in the back of my head. <laughs> this is not a love song. <laughs> oh, yeah. Pill was great. You know, we went on tour with Schoolie. We went on tour with uh, Big Audio Dynamite. You know, that was the actual first ever hip-hop tour of Europe uh, and Britain and everything. And we were playing in front of predominantly Clash fans. That's crazy. Mm. That's absolutely crazy. A lot of bottles and cans, not just on stage, sometimes at the hotel. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure. But out of the, like, say, 25, 3,000 people that would show up, there's like 12 to 15 there that are into this hip-hop thing. But for some, like, in Scotland and parts of Ireland, it was bizarre. They're like, people have never seen an MC and a DJ. That's crazy. They didn't know what to make of it. That's crazy. Was Mick Jones still bummed about the way things ended with Joe Strummer at that point, even though he was doing really well with Big Audio Dynamite? I don't think he was really thinking about that. And, you you know, have you ever seen the the Clash documentary? I've seen a bunch of them. It it really kind of like, it seems like Mick Jones was really had more to gain by... He was. It seems like he was on his own thing the whole time. I don't know. I could be wrong. I didn't ask him about it. It's the imbalanced history of rock and roll. Ray Coob and Marcus in the darkest with our guest Chris Schwartz. We're going to take a pause for the cause, the pause that refreshes, and we'll be right back with more with Chris talking about his book, All About Rough House in the Streets of Philly. Well, you know, Marcus, we talk about the guys at Crooked Eye Brewery so much, we should make them like partners in the podcast. (laughs) And they should make us partners in the brewery. Well, I'd like that because I get to go and drink all the good stuff for free, right? Yeah. Yeah, all right. (laughs) Well, you may not get to go and drink for free, but you can go and have a great time anytime you go into Crooked Eye. They're in the heart of Hapro, right at York Road and Montgomery Avenue. Stop on in and have uh, anything that's fresh off the board. Uh, There's so many great offerings. Jeff Mulher and the Chief Brewer always work on some neat stuff in the back room. Their new expanded brewing facility, Marcus. We saw it when we did the New Year's Eve party. Yeah, the, the facility's great. It's got great sound to record a podcast in, which means... <laughs> but it also <laughs> makes good beer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we... <laughs> if you want to go in with friends and you don't drink beer, they've got uh, wine and cider yep. and all kinds of things, especially in the wintertime. There's always a hearty ale or something that you can quench your thirst with there at Crooked Eye. You want to find out what's going on entertainment-wise, you can go to their website, CrookedEyeBrewery.com. Good friends, great beer. Next time you need a pint, make it a Crooked Eye right in the heart of Hatboro. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, 
or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything Factor Meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor Meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Well, we're sitting with Chris Schwartz, and we're talking about <laughs> the burden of running your own social media. It's big, isn't it? It yeah. is. I didn't know that. I can't say I was into the idea, and uh, my publishers said, you know, like, if you don't start getting into this, you're going to be destined for loserdom as a writer. And you got to do what I, you got to do. Know. Wait, wait, you're getting into podcasting, aren't you? Yeah. Wait, you're going to uh, have yeah. to have a whole other thing going yeah, wait on till with you that. Do no, that. I, well, I already, I already <laughs> taped four, four episodes. I cool. only run seven yeah. Facebook pages and two, two Twitter accounts and an Instagram. So you're going to have to hire a full-time uh, well, social media well, person. Well, I have to say this, that, you know, our podcast, we did we, we did four of them in one day. And it was with, uh, you know, School ED is my co-host. And along with- God, that's that's awesome. With a, a woman named Laia St. Clair, who also used to work for me that went into radio. And she also is a co-host on mm -hmm. Questlove Supreme, which was the first podcast I did. But yeah, it's uh, it was fun, man. Yeah, it is we fun. Do, we it talk is about fun. a lot we of stuff. We have fun. On, look, we talk about a lot of stuff, but we also have mm -hmm. a lot of fun, as you can tell. If you, I know you listened to a few episodes. Yeah. No. I want to talk to you about, you mentioned serendipity earlier. And so many of the things that happened to to create roughhouse were chance opportunities or meetings or things falling the tumblers yeah. locking falling mm -hmm. through everything falling into place you talk about some of that stuff in the book what do you think are the most important elements other than meeting joe the butcher in pulling the most that important whole thing together event for me yeah was when i was working at nice town records in west philly my office was on the third floor of this turn of the century dilapidated building above a daycare center and i was calling <laughs> uninterested retailers about uninteresting records working for this company. And I finally said, you know what? A guy named Richard Barrett. Richard Barrett, for those who don't know, was an artist. And one of his songs was one of the Beatles' favorite songs that they covered when they played the Cavern. Richard then went into production and management, and he discovered Frankie Lyman and the Teenagers, wow. and then later on, The Three Degrees. And Richard <sighs> lived up the street from me in Gladwin. We both drove the exact same Rolls Royce, different colors, and you know, we, we became really good friends. So anyhow, I met Richard at Nightstown Records, and he was down there looking for Ted. And I'm on the phone one day and he comes up the stairs and, you know, this guy comes in and he's this elderly African-American gentleman and he is impeccably dressed. I mean, beautiful clothes, like scarf and shoes, cashmere coat and everything. And he's sitting on a stack of records, box of records, waiting for me to get off the phone. And we start talking and I'm showing him, yeah, I got you added in Tuskegee and Savannah and then I got a retailer here and, you know, what? and he goes, what do you think of these records? And I think, well, they're generally not that great. He goes, well, don't you feel kind of weird calling people about them? I said, well, I'm just trying to learn the business, my job and everything. Mm -hmm. Talk to you the next time you call. I said, yeah, that's crossed my mind a few times. And then he left. And I remember I lit a cigarette and I thought about it. And you know what? 
fuck, he's right. This is like, you know, and like I was like I was making point. a lot of money, so I figured, you know what, let me go try my hand at, you know, and I had already got, I had gotten Joe's card when we did a session at Studio Four. It was the first time I had met him. So I decided, all right, this is going to be my last day. And an hour and a half later, I go downstairs to um, the owner's office, Ted. Same was Ted to a nice town. And I'm talking to him about something. And I'm looking over on the wall and I see these records with these bright yellow labels on it, the magic marker. And I pick one up and I look at it. And it's like, oh, Schoolie D, Gangster Boogie. I know this song. This is a great track, you know? I hear right. it, you know? And I said, what are you doing with all these? And he's like, it's how Ted talks. Oh, yeah. Schoolie <laughs> came by to see me. He wanted me to do distribution. But, you know, I told him I wasn't interested. And I'm sitting there, like, <laughs> we're, we're working a Bill Cosby live at Gradifer Prison. Right? You mentioned <laughs> That's <laughs> hilarious. Stuff. Ironic and, and now. a couple other, like, for, we did have one. We had a Bunny Sigler record that was great. I remember right. that, we, you know, but that was it. So, and I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my God, Schoolie D walked in here like this, this could. And so I went back upstairs and I sat by the window and I waited for Ted to leave. I went back down to his office. Right. And uh, I got Schoolie's number out of his Rolodex and I called him up and met up with him. And I said, look. Dad, by the way, yeah, when you but, read the book, the story of, yeah, of you going yeah, to meet Schooley yeah, is fucking hysterical. We won't, yeah, let's not give it away so there's yeah, some good yeah, yeah, stuff yeah, But you yeah, got together with him, and yeah. I mean, you guys are like yeah, joined at the I, hip I, ever yeah, since. Absolutely. I told him, I said, look, man. I said, you're like a big fish in a small pond here. You're like, you're you're the hippest trip since buttered toast in the city of brotherly love. But you need distribution. You need like, man, you like all this stuff. Because he had been doing it himself. Uh, he would go down, he'd press up records and take them down to Funko Martin. So, Is he know. the first DIY hip hop guy? Yeah, he was. It's actually mm. I was on this other this really credible hip hop podcast called Take It Personal, mm. and every, every the guys the guys on that really know their shit. And they said he was yeah he was the first legitimate independent movement in mm. hip hop. Now I say this with the caveat that prior to the major label colonization of the hip hop industry, right. which, which happened later on in mm -hmm. the late 80s. Can you read about Everybody that? was independent. But what made Schooley independent independent is that he actually drew his own label. You know That's what I mean? amazing. He drew his own art. Like That was like it was the first true independent movement. But what really, the event, Serendipity, was meeting him, ended up working with him, and then he goes and makes probably one of the most important hip hop records in terms of influencing and creating a genre. And that was PSK Gucci time because those were the first bona fide gangster hip hop records, and it influenced Ice T, Easy E, N.W.A. There'd be none Dr. of that Dre, stuff without because if you listen to Easy Does It, mm -hmm. if you listen to Ice T, Six A.M., they're blatant copies of PSK, and and they've been schooly. As a matter of fact, Ice T is on a new single with Schooly. Right, shameless plug here. Called, uh, <laughs> called, called the real hardcore, and he talks about it in the song. That's awesome, you know. Right? And it's like, and he's, he's giving Schoolie D affirmation. If it hadn't mm -hmm. been for you, there'd be no me. You know? Yep. Wow. In your wow. book, during the whole Schoolie D Wait. early days, you talked about the Beastie Boys opening up for Schoolie D, Man. and you also talked about Schoolie D going to L.A. and opening up for the Chili Peppers. Was that the Freaky Styley tour, or was that the self-titled debut record tour? That freaky Styley, the one that George Clinton. 
produced, yes. which is a brilliant album, yes. by the way. Yes, and all of our shit was covered with Dago Point after the tour. What was it like playing with the Chili Peppers in those they days? Were, we, hardly, we hardly ever saw them. Really? Yeah, and I was told, and I don't want to believe this, okay? I was told the reason that they weren't talking to us and they weren't very friendly is because Anthony didn't like the idea of hip hop opening up. Yeah. Interesting. And I, I didn't want to believe that because I was such a massive fan. You know, but, you know, there's something that I had found out since the book that is a pretty interesting trivia fact. And this was one of the most amazing things that I had ever heard. Oh, so here's what happened. My publisher calls me up and said, Chuck D just did a big thing on Instagram about your book. And it's a picture of Chuck D is holding the book up. I think I saw that. Yeah. I was like, Chuck D shot. My God, this is the most incredible thing. So you ready for this? I go over to Schoolie's house in Maniunk at like 4.30 in the afternoon. I knock on the door. He says, come in. He's on the phone and he's talking to Chuck and Chuck's telling him, talking about my book. Ah. And he goes, you're not going to believe. Chuck, guess who just came in here? Guess, here, talk to you. And he puts me on the phone with him. What? And I'm getting it's like, chilled, man. So I'm thanking Chuck for everything. He right. goes, he goes, I need to tell you something. What's that? He goes, I'm going to tell you two things. First off, if it hadn't been for School ED, I would have never become a rapper. Chuck mm. D performs PSK all the time uh-huh. out there, right? But he talked about the first time Public Enemy ever came to Philadelphia. He had the van take him to 52nd and Parkside, and he just sat there for two hours in the no van. Because he wanted to be at 52nd Whoa. and Parkside. Yeah. And this is Chuck D. Right. This is like Holy crazy. And I could not I believe him. what I was hearing. This is like the most amazing thing that this guy's telling me that he became a rapper because of Schooly. See, it's stuff like that that makes but me it feel 100% blew me, it blew me away. But, but their so styles much. are so different. I yeah, mean, I Public Enemy's not gangster rap. They're politically charged no, and brilliant in a not, different no, way. No, they're not gangster rap, but they're very, when in they're in their, at the core of their hate, they're, they're very street. They're hard as shit. Yes. Yeah. Well, the roots are hard as fuck, too. And I love the roots yeah, for that hard. To me, are more like Tribe Call Quest. They're more. They're I more... find them to be harder than them. Tribe's got a warmth. I think that, that yeah, I, not I, a but, Philly toughness that, that the say, roots have. It ain't Public Enemy. Come That's on, we're true. talking about a, Chuck we're talking D's about amazing. A feel that you what, only get from makes, listening to one what, group. Oh, yeah. what That's makes true. Public Enemy to me, you know, the songs like "Welcome to the Terror uh, She it, watched Channel Zero. It, it's just like that. That stuff. No matter how you shake it or bake, it just pops. It's uh, it's funny because I've been going through a Public Enemy retrospective, and yeah, I, I really I loved Good. it then, and I love it now. I remember the first time I ever heard uh, "Rebel Without a Pause," oh. and that uh, Terminator X uh, turntable break. I was like, man, how does somebody think of that? You know what mm. I mean? Just like incredible. These things come to artists. I don't, I play records. You know mm. what I mean on the radio. That's what I can play. You know, <laughs> but, but I, I'm always in amazement at some of the things that come out. And you sit there, and it's the things that amaze me are all so different. So yeah, it's I, you, I, you never know where it's going to come from. I guess I, I'll tell you this. I. And I'm going to admit something that I've never talked about in any interview. Because, you know, Uh I guess by human nature, you want to come off like you know what you're talking about and you're confident in everything that you do and like, oh, I can pick the hit. I can hear it. Oh, that's going to work, right? Well, here's the simple reality. You know, if I look back, right, like the first... Fuji's record, right? Which wasn't considered the greatest record, but it did the trick and everything. I didn't know what was going to happen with that record, right? But here's what I did know. I did know that at the time, I hated hip-hop. I didn't hate it. I just hated the live presentation, right? I hated, I was getting tired of going and see these artists 
DJ and the MC, MC Mashed Potato and DJ Gravy Boat, and there are two dancers that are supposed to distract us from the fact that there's not a lot this going is on stage. Coming for <laughs> him, buddy. Right? right? Yeah. So, so I go to see Joey and I go up to New York to manager's office, and we see this. We don't even know what it is we're looking at. There's like eight or nine people, right? But there's a dude playing guitar over a beatbox, and it's islandy. It's like West Indies, and it's just like. And within 45 seconds, it was like, I want, I want, I want, I yeah. want. You knew. Right. That you just knew. But they got passed on by every single label, right? And I'm thinking, well, why? And you know, it's funny. I was, I did a, I, I was an interview on a, on um, Ebro in the morning on Hot 97, and Rosenberg, really cool guy. He said, I could see how they would have gotten passed on because it looked like a mess because you don't know mm. what it is. But that was the whole thing. And I think, you know, like Cypress Hill, my God, man, that was an easy one. Listening to those demos, you know, but you don't know, you don't know, but you know, but, you, you know, it's different. But, you like, it. you just don't know if anybody else is going to be into it. You know? How different were those Cypress Hill demos? from the final product that you put out at Ref House. Well, I will say this. Mugs. Well, first off, you know, it's in it's in the production and delivery, right? Yeah. In, they in, spit first it off, I love Be it. Real and Send. First time I ever at Cypress Hill, I thought there were four four guys rapping because I didn't realize mm. the different the voices, right? Yeah. And then Mugs has got to be pound for pound, in my humble estimation, one of the greatest hip-hop producers out there, right? So you take that, but then you combine it with Joe Niccolo, who, <laughs> Joe, look, look, here's the thing. I'm going to tell, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make this profession that in the 80s what i really hated was going into a studio with a white engineer to make a hip-hop record because here what's the first thing a white engineer does he's going to take the beat drum track and he's going to clean it up he's going to make it all antiseptic and clean which makes it very flat very unimaginative very uninteresting right what does joe nicolo do joe does totally counterintuitive he just takes it and he makes it even more dirty and bombastic and big right <laughs> so right. there were three guys that did this arthur baker rick rubin and joe nicolo and if you look at joe's entire body of work as a producer everything from jazzy jeff and the fresh prince mc breeze hilltop hustlers schoolie d all the way up to the cypress hill records my god it's like that you can't by a time when he was at the top of his game and then Cypress comes in with mugs and the way these guys rapped and everything, right. it was one of those perfect storms, right? Okay. And so, yeah, to answer your question, the demos were dope. The demos were, they, were absolutely amazing. Were they and, produced differently? Well, here's the thing. The songs were there. We got the first cassette that I think had like five things on it. But then while we were, you know, offering them a deal and everything, they got a, a demo deal from BMG Music Publishing and they went in the studio. Then we got an ADAT that had like another five songs on it. And it was like... Oh, uh, yeah, this is an album deal. <laughs> there's no, there's no, there's no. Just yeah, single deal went out right out the window. But here's the thing. When they got when they won their 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 star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, Be Real made a big deal about thanking us and saying that, you know, without Rough House, because we let them be them. Because every other label was trying to tell them, oh, don't talk about weed. Don't talk about that. Don't talk about this. <laughs> yeah. And look. The stigma. We were like, look at They I were 25 look, years I ahead. Even spoke, yeah, I didn't even least. smoke weed, you know, at the time. And I said, yeah. 
Pacquiao, yeah. man. Just let the good, just <laughs> let the good times roll. Yeah. But when that first song "Pigs" came out, it was like Questlove was talking about, you know, before he was signed and he was a kid in the street and trying to get into hip hop and everything. He said, first time we heard that record, we were like, huh? You know, like what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like it's a cool song. You know. Speaking but, of Questlove, I learned two things reading your book before I ever even got to page one. First, I never knew that Amir's dad was Lee Andrews of Lee Andrews and the You know Hearts. what? I Can never I knew you? that. I he learned that about me, a year he ago, never told I think. Me that till we were doing the podcast and and he wrote the forward for the book. I was like, I never knew that either. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Is that where it ends? That's where we're going to have to cut it off. What about the other thing? I want to know about the other thing. Well, if you want to know about the other thing, you come back next week and listen to the other thing. Oh, yeah. I guess that's how it works. It is. I'm intrigued, man. We were really rolling there with Chris Schwartz. Uh, such an interesting guy and great guy to just hang out and talk with, man. It was so cool. And we've got a lot more things, including a couple of very interesting revelations in the second part of this interview. Yes, you definitely want to be aware of one of the revelations that happens in part two. You also want to read his book, Rough House from the Streets of Philly to the Top of the 90s Hip Hop Charts. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, any bookseller. I actually saw it at a local bookstore by my house. Nice. So support I was the very local excited. Absolutely support the local bookstores and check the book out. It seriously is a great read. Not only does he talk about the music, but as we touched on in the first part, Ray, he gave us some pretty cool insight about how the hip hop industry worked and how things happen, how yeah. things happen with him too and everything at Rough House. Yep. And things that he could have put into the book, but he chose not to because I don't know. Second book. But, well, there'll definitely be a second part, even if there isn't a second book. So uh, we'll be doing that. And by the way, uh, give us your feedback. If there's anything we got right or anything more you think we should know about what we're talking about in part one with Chris, Chuck D, all you got to do is hit us up at imbalancedhistory at gmail.com. That's a good way to get a hold of us anytime. Absolutely. Or you can check us out on Facebook, Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll, or Twitter. As well, imbalanced histo. Oh, we got to thank Santa because he brought us the RY. Not Twitter. We got RYs. Actually, Marisa got us both a little box with uh, RY in it. Uh, The letters RY from, I guess, like Michael's Craft Store or something. And so we both got to shook it up. And you can see the video on uh, both our Twitter account and on the Facebook page when Marcus gets his RY. But Twitter, Twitter, come on. Yeah, come on, Twitter. Give us the RY. We're almost there. After that, I think we're a little parched and might need a pint. Well, we have to thank our friends at Crooked Eye because, you know, they've got the cure for what since 2014 and they sponsor the imbalance podcast that's going to wrap it up and we're going to have to wait to hear about thing number two on part two with chris schwartz i'm ray coob i'm marcus in the darkest on the imbalance history of rock and roll What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and my dad. 
From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.